Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Fitter, Healthier Dad podcast, where you can learn how to improve your diet, lose fat, and get fitter in a sustainable and fun way without spending hours in the gym. Here is your host, Darren Kirby. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. This is the number one podcast for dads in their 40s who want to improve their health and fitness. This is episode 68, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking to the former deputy leader of the Labour Party, Tom Watson about his dramatic health transformation and type 2 diabetes reversal. Tom is a best-selling author, broadcaster and speaker. A former deputy of the Labour Party, he served on frontline politics for over four decades. He worked at the heart of 10 Downing Street as a minister with Gordon Brown and served as a defence minister for Tony Blair. Tom has recently left politics to pursue a new career as a trainee gym instructor and a writer. Hey Tom, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Yeah, good to be on. Yeah, thanks very much for giving us your time today and uh, coming on the show. I've been obviously chasing you down for for quite a a number of months um, because you've got a super fascinating story and it's so relevant to our audience and to the podcast. So... I, look, first of all, let me say thanks for your persistence because I really wanted to do it. But I, since I left politics, all my support systems like, collapsed and it's taken me a bit of time to get my act together. But anyway, I'm, I'm here now and I'd love to talk to you. Your yeah. Awesome. Okay, so for, for people that probably that haven't maybe come across you or have come across you but don't know your kind of health journey transformation, can we just kick off with, with some of that? Yeah, I mean, sure. I'm 53 now and probably the healthiest I've been in 25 years. Um, And I think in many senses, my own story is a a bit of an everyman story, really. There's Mm. lots of people like me in that I started putting the pounds on, you know, probably in my early 20s and made little interventions into, you know, diet over the years, but failed very quickly. Um, And then turn 50 and all of a sudden I'm 22 stones, hypertension uh, with type 2 diabetes Um, and found the headspace to address it nutritionally to start with and then with exercise. And here I am sort of three years later uh, having reversed type 2 diabetes, lost eight stone, brought down my blood pressure and living an active and joyful, most of the time, peaceful life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, it is so fascinating, the, the amount of weight that you've lost. Um, and, you know, it's something like, is it 90-odd pounds that you lost? No, it's more than that. It's 100 pounds. It was eight stone, so I forget right. what that is in pounds now. But, um, yeah. And, you know, it... it um, it, it, I lost about a hundred pounds in right. the first year and then spent the next two years bringing the rest off um, yeah. slowly and it dips up, you know, I had a bad, you know, I had a bad middle lockdown period. So I put a bit of weight on, yeah. uh, but I feel like I'm in control now, you know, I'm healthy, yeah. you know, so, you know, I'm about to do a 5k run every day for the next month, which is right. just my little way of recalibrating. Um, yeah. And I feel I've got that sort of 
bandwidth and control over my own physiology and nutritional inputs now to be able to let the boat out a little bit and not worry about it um which is a beautiful position to be in for me because i've never been like that no and I, i think it's a it's a position that many many people never ever get to um and it is you know it is sad to see because it's almost like it's a socially accepted norm that when you get to 40s, 50s or whatever, that the, the dad bod happens or the, the gut happens and it's, it's just there and that's part of what happens in life um, when it doesn't need to be like that. So what, what I wanted to, to ask you though, Tom, was was there a pivotal moment where you kind of had that either wake-up call or reflection to say, I need to do something about this, you know, was it the, the type two diabetes that came on or was it just, you, you hit a certain number? What was it that kickstarted it? I wouldn't say there was any one point. Uh, I mean, I've described this as like, uh, I mean, the motivation was fear of death. I mean, it was that fundamental. Right. I, I didn't want to die. And I knew because I'm a rational person most of the time. Yeah that I had all those comorbidities that meant I was probably, you know, going to leave the planet early. And, and I love my kids. They're young and I wanted to live for them. Um, mm. But it took me a lot of time. I've described that as what started off as a tiny whisper. Mm. By the time I actually committed, it was like a very shouty voice in my head. Uh, right. and, and I find for when I actually switched the kind of switch in my head to on. And mm. it took a, bit, a few years I'd been, diagnosed um with type 2 some years before that um and i immediately went into denial about it like a lot of people i just pretended i didn't have it i I didn't talk about it in public i was ashamed about it i took my metformin as discreetly and quietly as i could um and refused to have an inner conversation about the implications for it and I, I, I can sort of laugh about it now, yeah. uh, uh, you, you know, but it was, you know, what some points I think it was irresponsible and some points I think it was just very sad. But um, at the time it was quite a big deal just to admit it to myself. Uh, in fact, one of the things I did about a year in after, after I got my blood sugars in, in the right range was, was come out publicly and, 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 and admit that I was type two diabetic because yeah. um, you know, I think it's really important that people shouldn't feel shame about that. Yeah, I, I, and again, it's, it's interesting how when these conditions happen to us, it's like, again, that it's a, you know, it's a bad thing, you failed and therefore, you know, you shouldn't talk about it and you just take your medication and that's just part of your life now, isn't it? And, and I think type 2 diabetes for me above all of the, the illnesses that us men could get, it is such a frustrating disease. And I don't mean that in, in I don't mean to belittle it, but what I mean is that it can be reversed. And obviously you've demonstrated that it can be reversed, but so many people are just, um, I don't know what it is. They, they just don't want to accept that it can be reversed. And therefore, like you said, you know, you, they just accept it and they, they take their metformin and they just carry on with their life where, you know, instead of understanding why it's happened in the first place. It's funny because, you know what, even though I'm, you know, pretty well read and I was quite successful in life and thought I was sort of aware of things, 
when I was diagnosed, I just thought I'd got a chronic illness and that something inside me had broken and would never mend again. Um, And so didn't actually know that it could be reversed. It was only a little further down the line that I understood what you're actually on is is an axis of, uh, you know, blood sugar control uh, and you can bring your insulin resistance down. Uh, It took me a long time to get there. And so I think one of the things we need with public health policy is, you know, on the moment of diagnosis, tell people, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. They don't have to be on meds. They don't have to be on a slippery slope. There are changes they can make. um, And when they're ready to do that, you know, there'll be support systems for them in place. Yeah. And, you know, obviously you were very um, high up in UK politics and obviously big part of the Labour Party. And, some of the statistics that I've read, you know, particularly around the NHS and things like that in terms of diabetes and treating diabetes, you know, this, the, the figures that I last saw, that they were spending something like £16 billion a year on diabetes treatments. And it is one of the, or if not the second most treated disease that people go into the NHS for now. Is that correct or incorrect? The numbers are extraordinary. And when I started to look into the policy, it's about 10% of the NHS budget. Um, right. But the statistic that really got me, and it actually came about through the sister of a, a Scottish surgeon who said, my brother is complaining that he keeps having to do diabetic-related amputations when what he wants to be doing is replacing hips for older people oh. so they can live active lives again. Yeah. And I did some parliamentary questions on it, and, and it yielded the thing that we... we amputate over 140 toes or feet a week in the NHS as a result of type two. And when you look at some of the research from organizations like Verta Health in the States that basically show you can get into remission in about 50% of cases as a minimum, Mm. um, even if you're just trying to save 70 amputations a week, it's worth going for it. Uh, You're saving lives. You're giving parents you know longer times with their children there's all those individual gains you're making Mm. but there's a taxpayer interest too you know there's many billions of pounds that could be diverted into other areas of health if we if we can sort of shift the dial a bit on health prevention or you know get people in on reversal programs yeah and and that for me is is really quite profound And, and i believe that this has to come back to education I don't think it, for me, it's not a case of like a sugar tax or a fat tax or whatever kind of tax you want to put on it, because that doesn't address the fundamental cause of it. It's just addressing the symptoms. And I just truly believe that, you know, I can't remember, I think, no, I had Professor Tim Spector on the show last week. uh, And and he, he was saying that we have to have food education come back into schools as a mandatory subject and I couldn't agree with him more because it's going to be the children that are going to be able to reverse this and change this adults are obviously you know resistant to changes we all see day in day out but I believe that it needs to start there so what what's your view on that it's funny because uh, well I agree I agree with the education point but very often I think the the debate almost boils falsely sets people into two camps it's like those that say, you know, it's down to individual choice, the, the, the individuals have got to be disciplined and it's all down to the, 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 bad, the errors of judgment. Uh, you know, they're the ones who have created the, this condition. Yeah. 
and then others who say the system uh, you, you know we need to tax away we need to do this the truth is you need a mix of both uh, and how i've described it i remember doing an interview with piers morgan where he said look you know isn't it just lazy people that get diabetes mm. And it's not lazy people who get diabetes. Uh, It's like people try their best, but the system is stacked against them. Mm. Uh, And so getting the the system right, I think is really important. So so when I, you you know, I I, I genuinely believe there is too much sucrose in our daily diets. I mean, the thing that the game changer for me was ridding myself of sugar. Um, And I now understand that I'm a sugar addict and that I was getting sugar spikes throughout the day. I was eating a Kit Kat mid morning and then taking a drop and then picking up again at lunchtime. Um, and then when you look at that, first of all, you do change your, you know, I don't drink Coke anymore and I don't eat Mars bars anymore. Uh, I don't eat confectionery at all. Um, but there's hidden sugars in food, so that it's a labelling issue. There's buy one, get one free offers in supermarkets, so there's an issue about how you do marketing and advertising. I think you've got to attack it from all sides, and you've got to give people the chance and the route to make their lives, um, you know, enhanced by changed nutrition. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think you're right. There's all many different facets to, to how we need to how we need to tackle this. But just coming to back to you and your change for, for, for a while, obviously at the time when you made that change, you were um, you know, very senior in the Labour Party, obviously very, very busy, as most parents are. So how were you able to, with everything you had going on, to make such a fundamental change um, and stay consistent with it? Because you know, a lot of the people that I have in my community, they struggle not necessarily with the diet, but with fitting everything in around families and careers and all the rest of it. I mean, t- time, time is the hardest thing on this because uh, you have to commit to it. I mean, you have to commit to read and understand, you know, you always have to sort of generate your own plan, even though very often you could be living this, enacting the plan not just hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute, not wanting mm. to eat the next minute or the next minute when you first start off. Mm. Um, but finding the time. So for me, I needed time. I realized I needed time to sort out where I live so I could clear the cupboards out of all the bad stuff. Uh, but I needed to find time to, you know, buy the food that I needed. I needed to find more time to prepare real food so, because I, I had to get rid of microwave meals and takeaways for obvious reasons. Um, and then obviously in my working day, I was deputy leader of the Labour Party. Uh, and what people know is probably the craziest period of Labour history. Yeah. There was a lot going on. Yeah. Um, phones were, you know, I was getting emails at five in the morning and at midnight. Uh, yeah. uh, and I had to, I had to just carve out time in my diary to commit to those things yeah. uh, and that was a very difficult conversation with my team uh, mm. and it took a bit of time to get there and, and in the end you know I, I explained that I needed to sort out my health it needed to be a priority um, and even then you know the first few weeks I remember sort of blocking out time to do various health things um, and then meetings appearing in the diary and me saying look I, I need I block these out I need this time um, and in the end, I just said, these are the times I'm going for my walks. 
these are the times I'm, you know, preparing food. I won't be in any meetings in those times. And whatever you put in the diary, I won't turn up. Yeah. And in the end, you know, my team, my team sort of accommodated that time. Yeah. But, uh, but it is the hardest thing. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, because you, you feel like you're stealing, you know, time from other people. You feel like you're letting people down, and, and yeah. actually, you're not. And, and very shortly into it, obviously, I became more productive. I became calmer, a calmer colleague to work with. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I've, my recall of mental acuity got sharper. I was just, I just could do more, more quickly, uh, in, in in less time. So, mm. uh, but of course, it's hard to. You just you haven't got the bandwidth to know that when you start oh. the journey. So it's really it's really hard in the first in the first weeks and months. Yeah, it is that change, isn't it? And it's it's all very well getting the motivation to get started, but it's maintaining the consistency, isn't it, in the change to kind of, you know, continue deal with when when life's throwing all kinds of different challenges at you, um, and you know, not giving up because not only is it just the actual change itself, it's the it's the psychological element and the physical side of it which you're you know you're going to be going through because you said you know. See, you're a sugar addict, and we know that sugar triggers the same chemical response in the brain that cocaine does, and so it's a very addictive kind of substance. And so, you must have gone through, you know, especially in the early period, some real challenging times when you know you're, you, you were coming out of the, the kind of sugar fix, if you like. Yeah, the sugar coming off sugar. Um... I mean, actually, the, I, I forget which book I read, but the, 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 it was described it as sugar sucrose lights up the brain like a Christmas tree, and mm. cocaine only lights up one bit of the brain. So it, it, it has a, it has a, you know, it's a bigger effect on more of the brain. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I had massive sugar cravings, um, right. and and actually, banking the winds is a really important thing as well, and I. I it only took it took me a lot of time to sort of understand that, but very quickly um, when I came off sugar, my sleep got better. You, you know, right. previously I'd been going to you know I'd get up to go to the bathroom a couple of times a night, um, and after a couple of weeks, I you know I slept right through, and you just wake up with a better in a better shape. You, mm. you, you know, your brain. I, I've described it as like a lifting of the brain fog, um, yeah. and so all those little tiny gains you make in the early weeks and months for me they were really important and i'm not i i measured everything and i'm you know i did my weight my blood pressure my blood glucose my ketones a whole load of things right. um, and that sort of reinforced the because i knew on a rational level that tiny steps made over time would have a big cumulative impact you kind of know that at an abstract level mm. but when you're wrestling with just wanting to eat sweets minute by minute when you uh, the, when the cravings are really upon you yeah. it's where you, you i mean you can't have that self-discipline for the rest of your life but no. you know it gets you through a through a, a sort of pain barrier um you, you know banking the winds is really important so getting through a day without eating sweets was an mm-hmm. achievement for me um, I mean, I sort of, I'm, I can tell I'm smiling and laughing about it now. I mean, at the time it was obviously agony and it, it was yeah. really mentally draining to do it. 
Um, but it, that soon wears off. I mean, that, that didn't last forever. I mean, you know, quite, you can get off sugar quite quickly. And when you're changing nutrition and you've got a regular diet, the cravings go away quite quickly within weeks, I would say. Yeah. And, and so do you suffer with bouts of cravings now or is that just non-existent anymore? Very occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, these are, I feel ashamed to say this, but there were times when I'd, you, you know, I'd eat the kids Easter eggs, you know, and they were <laughs> before Easter, you know, uh, yeah. I, you know, once I started eating, I, I mean, yeah. my partner would hide chocolate biscuits under the pants in the kitchen, you know, and yeah. I, I couldn't just eat one chocolate biscuit. I'd have to eat the whole lot. Yeah. Uh, I don't get that anymore. Right. Uh, I, I, and I've rarely, uh, you, you know, I, I, if I eat chocolate, I'll have 80% cocoa chocolate. Yeah. Um, and I can still scuff half a bar of that, which is yeah. calorifically high, but it, it, I don't get the kind of impact of a really high sugar product, um, you know, and, and your taste buds change as well. So, um, yeah. you know, my bigger, the biggest threat to my weight now is, uh, it's not sweets. It's overeating cheese. Um, oh, right. Okay. You get a savory, you get a savory taste. Yeah. Uh, but, um, so yeah. And occasionally, Occasionally, if I'm on the run or we're away, and I have quite a high carb intake, that yeah. that, that triggers craving. So I, I I keep an eye on that as best I can. Um, uh, so I rarely, you know, like I've not had a whole pizza for three years. Right, um, okay. The worst thing I can do is go out with my daughter when she has pizza and she leaves a couple of slices. I mean, yeah. that's, that's that's about as far as I get on indulging. But yeah. And I, and I kind of I'm laughing at that because it wasn't unusual for me to order two, you know, extra large pizzas and uh, having been voting in the House of Commons till eleven o'clock and yeah. eating them at midnight and knocking myself out on you know ginormous pizzas for a whole family. Yeah, it, it is. It's crazy how things develop and you you actually become unconscious to what you're doing until you stop and reflect and you know look at what you're doing but you know i can can relate to everything you said particularly around cravings i mean the easter eggs the reason i laughed at the easter egg story because i was exactly the same the kids easter eggs were they were under threat (laughs) if they didn't eat them that was it dad was going to demolish them and so and it and it's funny and, and people listen to this might be thinking what are these guys talking about but it is an uncontrollable um you know have not a habit but it's you, you are it's almost like it's an addiction you have to have it and once you've had that first bite you're not going to stop tv and all of it it's so a, it is an addiction and i treat myself as a reformed addict i, I use that addict's language yeah stop myself because i'm frightened of slipping back um mm. and there's two other inserts because also it's and you're right about it not being conscious when, when i wrote the book downsizing uh, i put one of these in the book um I was waiting for my partner to come and see me in a restaurant. Um, right. And when she walked in, I was subconsciously leaning onto the next table and eating leftover cake from a plate <laughs> on somebody else's table uh, without any consciousness of it. And then my, my kid's grandma, she said her abiding memory of me was always walking into a house on a phone and all she could hear was the fridge door squeaking open as I... <laughs> as I worked my way down from the top of the fridge, you know, I'd stuff in my face with whatever I could get out of the fridge while I was talking yeah. without any awareness of it. I, I, I had no consciousness that I was, 
I was eating at that time. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, people, it's hard, I, it's hard to describe that. And, you know, I think you've got to have got out of that cycle so that people can understand just how addictive it is. Yeah. And also the thing that I would like to say is there might be people listening to this who, until they've heard this, assume that they're the only people that actually do it. But I would argue that there's probably a hell of a lot of people that actually are doing what we're talking about in terms of the unconscious eating, in terms of the binge eating and thinking that there's something just wrong with them or it's just them that do it. But I would say that it's, you know, if you only have to look at the the population and the size of, you know, um, how we've grown, that there's a lot of us that are doing this unconscious eating. And obviously there's a, there's another side to it in terms of, you know, how it makes us feel, how it kind of just boosts us from a mood perspective when we're consuming these high fats and high sugary foods. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, and, and like you say, you know, you've obviously treated it as an addiction and it might sound extreme, but if you look at the science behind it, like we were saying earlier around how sugar lights up the brain, you can completely understand how that is the case. Um, and, and, I, and I read an article um, that you were saying that you went through this, this when, when you decided to make the change that you cleared the kitchen out. And I advocate this in my, in my programs and to a lot of our members that, that having the concept of the capsule cupboard where you just have in the cupboard what you need to maintain whatever nutrition plan or whatever is you're following. Because if you have temptations in that cupboard, you will undoubtedly fail and, and, and go and eat them. Yeah, you definitely will. And, and actually for me, the, because, um, you, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't necessarily a day one, but there was definitely an accelerated understanding of what I needed to do. And I sort of planned ahead on this. I mean, you know, I put about two weeks ahead. I thought that's the day I cleaned the cupboards out. Yeah. And I made sure I replaced it with the right stuff. And, you know, you go through, you go through your cupboards, you've got like jars of jam that are 18 months old and stuff. <laughs> you know, I mean, there'd have been times where if there was nothing else left, I'd have eaten that out with the spoon, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Get rid of all of that. Uh, and, and that's part of the cleansing process, I think, the mental cleansing you know and you never want to go back to it um and, yeah. and so far i haven't yeah and i think that's it i think once you get over that hump almost you you don't want to go back to it because like you mentioned earlier and this was the biggest realization for me it wasn't necessarily the weight loss it was the mental clarity that i had the fog had been lifted yeah. Um, and cognitively, you know, like memory, like you were saying, you was able to recall things better. You were switched on, you were more alert. And that is the thing that drives me is to continue that. You know, I don't want to come back to this foggy, roggy type, you know, feeling that I, I used to have. Me too. Uh, it's such a, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I'd forgotten what it was like to be sharp. Uh, and it comes back and you don't want to lose that you really yeah. don't want to lose that do you I mean and it, um, I felt like I, it felt a bit like my IQ went up like like my mental yeah. acuity had sharpened my voluntary recall effects so I can remember names yeah all those little games um, and it's slightly more esoteric but I think it changed the inner voice in me as well it changed my mm. inner conversation I, I think I think my inner conversation was spent, there was so much of it talking to myself about where my next sugar fix was coming from. Yeah. 
not not you know but it was fooling me like are you going to the members team room to meet kevin brennard what mm. what i was really saying was go and buy another kit cat <laughs> yeah. when, when you get off that yes you, there's, there's a, the, it generates a different conversation uh in yourself so it it sort of at a very fundamental level it changes who you are i mean it's very hard to prove that empirically or scientifically but that's that's how it felt for me yeah it does and this is what i try and convey a lot in in, in when i'm talking and that is it's the unexpected consequences so when we're thinking about getting fitter and healthy and changing our diet what we don't realize is all of the side effects that come of it the positive side effects like we've just been talking about and i think that is the biggest thing you know and for me you know, energy wise, I've got way more energy than I ever had than, than when I was in my 20s now. And I'm, you know, 47. So, you know, it's um, that that is the positive element of it. And you are more present for your family, for your partner, for your children when that happens. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, the thing, you know, you can you shouldn't dwell on your regrets because it push you back into eating more sugar. But yeah. I, I did miss out on my kids. I'm doing things with my kids. Um, early on in their life because I was just physically tired all the time. Mm. Sersha, my youngest, um, she always does an impression of me where, you know, she used to sort of put, she used to do this because she just remembered me on the phone. Uh, Or I remember nodding off, reading them a book at night when they go, when they're in bed, you know, I'm so tired. I literally, you know, I read the Jabberwocky and halfway through the Jabberwocky, I'm (laughs) nodding off. Um, And it's not like that now. Um, They get irritated with me trying to get them out. Yeah. (laughs) which uh, is great absolutely it's a nice reversal yeah it is definitely so obviously when you dialed in your nutrition um you obviously went down the ketogenic diet route um and there's obviously huge benefits around this ketogenic is only really now popular in the wellness health world because of the, of the fat burning benefits, but it's been around for quite a number of years and it's really yeah. helped people with epilepsy and things like that. So yeah. in terms of when you decided, did you actively go out and do the research and find out which diet would be best for you or how did, how did that come yeah, out? I did. I, I, um, it started off with a serendipitous conversation with a mutual friend uh, called Claire Nazir, who, who's a, she's actually a meteorologist. Uh, right. But she told me about ketogenic nutrition and the sort of theory behind it. Um, and I then carried on reading about it. I, I just read and read and read. Um, so, um, and looked at the work of Jason Fung, listened to Dave Asbury, read his Bulletproof Diet, did Seymour Hotter's P.O.P. Diet. I just sort of read my way around right. their writing and um, sort of lectures and podcasts and then sort of tried to get hold of the research around it. Mm-hmm. And I knew that my problem, my diabetes was sugar related. Right. Uh, and that, that so, you know, the argument that processed food and, and a high carb, a higher carb diet might adversely affect people with diabetes and insulin resistance more, type mm-hmm. 2 diabetes more. So I thought, what have I got to lose? I've, I've tried every other diet going from the cabbage soup diet to Weight Watchers over the previous 30 years. Yeah. Go for it. Um, and it had a dramatic impact. The, mi- the minute I turned to keto, uh, right. you know, I lost a pound a day for a week and felt great. You, right. you know, my, my sleep was getting better. Uh, 
and so I just carried on. Um, and so now, now I would say I probably cycle in and out of ketosis, which is sort of advanced level for yeah. people who are into this. And my diet is more of a classic diet that you do, you know, it's like you could call it the Mediterranean diet or you, you know, I would call it the meat and five veg diet. You know, it's much simpler. Yeah. Uh, as many greens as I can get in me. Yeah. With a piece of steak or a piece of chicken or a piece of fish. <laughs> uh, and I, I, you know, if I, uh, and that's just, I kind of, my body tells me what it needs these days. Uh, And I can, and there's some days where I'll be a bit more carby, but, you know, I'll have a sweet potato rather than a baked potato. Uh, 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 You know, so, um, but yeah, keto was the thing that really changed it for me. And, and it, and it, and it was very impactful very early, which I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people who start of, a health journey find very rewarding as well because it just it helps them it gives them a little boost in the early when it's the hardest yeah and i think it's you know keto, the ketogenic diet really if you break it down essentially what is is it people I th- and i think people get a little bit confused by this in the sense that they they assume that it's completely no carbs at all when you know you have carbs in vegetables don't you from fiber and things like that so it's, it's, it's reducing because when you look at the Western diet, we are basically carb eaters, you know, it is bread, pasta, rice, all the rest of it. Um, and so I think, you know, and, and for, for people that don't really understand what the ketogenic diet is, by having a higher fat diet, you actually get a more of a stable blood sugar. And therefore, you don't get these peaks and troughs um with with it with spikes in insulin and all the rest of it which then give you energy crashes so you get a much more sustained level of energy throughout the day um and i i just think that you know it's not the be all and end all for everybody but i think that if you have been traditionally following a western diet by trying a ketogenic diet um, and that doesn't mean to say you just go out and eat any kind of fats, and we'll get onto that bit in a, min- in a minute, that it can really have a positive impact, not just on weight again, but again on cognitive ability. So I found when I started it, particularly in the morning, by having a bulletproof coffee, my brain and energy levels in the morning, my alertness was more than I'd ever experienced in my adult life before. So I'm assuming that was you know, a similar, similar scenario for you. Yeah, to the point where, I, I, you know, I almost want to fall at my knees and worship at the altar of Dave Asprey for getting <laughs> the coffee. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I've got, I, I developed a really strong morning routine. Uh, yeah. They were almost sort of symbolically making my coffee and making a bulletproof. Uh, yeah. And my, the mental clarity, I'm always, I'm best, that's the best part of the day for me. So if mm. I'm writing or I've got an idea, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get it all down in the morning. Because by the evening, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still okay, but I'm not as sharp. No. Uh, and, uh, I, 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 and when I finally sort of wean myself off sugar, understanding the physiological change at a very subtle level, Mm. what I put in myself became a lot easier yeah Uh, so you know I think you're sort of you're so sort of just throwing things in yourself you don't quite understand the impact it's having until you've until you've got a a little bit on the journey Mm. and then you know okay I had that yeah I feel a little bit I've got a bit of a drop in energy there that's probably not as good for me 
Um, and, and with Bulletproof Coffee, for me, it always gave me mental clarity. Mm. It actually would, would get me through the sugar cravings as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, so there's something to... Now, I know, and the other thing is, of course, that's not... You know, that won't be true of everyone. I just no. think... I mean, the problem with one-size-fits-all public health advice on nutrition is everybody's physiology is different. And continuous glu- glucose monitors are sort of basically proving that every minute of every day now because the 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 insulin the 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 reaction of the body to particular foodstuffs is different in all of us 100 percent, yeah yeah definitely so at the at which point in your journey then did you start to implement the exercise side of things because you know i'm a big advocate of you know getting your diet dialed in before you start to exercise because i would imagine at the size that you were at, if you then just went straight into exercise or doing couch to 5K or whatever it is, you would have pretty much done yourself more damage than good. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're, when you're over 40, the golden rule of exercise is don't get injured, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I nearly, I nearly broke that rule a few times in the early days. Um, I think the first thing I want to say is, you know, if you don't want to do exercise don't do exercise right yeah. i don't mean it. I, I mean nutrition has to come first there's no point in doing exercise unless you get the nutrition right no and for me i, I wanted to do both but i knew i was very limited i, I mean so my stretch my stretch target i mean this sounds sad saying it now to get five thousand steps a day in was the first thing i did and, and most people do that more than that on average mm. uh, and so it just started with walking and, uh, you know, I, I soon upped it to 6,000 and then seven and a half thousand and then eventually 10,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but that was, you know, there were times where I'd feel, you know, a, a really exhausted and tired if, yeah. when I'd done that. Um, and, um, I, I, and the steps thing was quite a long time. And I remember being on holiday in Torre Molinos and everyone being asleep in the morning, I'd get up quite early yeah. to get my steps in. And there's a long drag across the beach, and, and there's loads of runners. Uh, and right. I remember the first day, I thought, okay, tomorrow I'm going to run from one lamppost to the next. Uh, and I remember just going from walking to jogging from one lamppost to the next and feeling faint at the end of it, but right. feeling euphoric that I'd overcome... Uh, hurdle yeah. and then throughout that week you know i try two lampposts or then one lamppost walk the next lamppost yeah and then so just introducing a tiny little bit of running mm-hmm. um, and that was a real joy um yeah. that was a real joy and then i so incrementally is basic the answer is i did it incrementally and it, yeah. it went from there to cycling to doing a few hit classes to doing yeah. a bit of lifting of weights to running machines and all the things yeah but it, it I, I took it I, I mean when i first started i was pathetic the, the one the one rule i did the one rule i did set was uh don't take the lift on any staircase you yeah. can that's great yeah. uh, and, that, and that became that became a real challenge because that i was then in my, my office was in big ben uh right. under big ben and then they had to do these emergency renovations. So I had to move office and they moved right. me to the second floor. So, so basically it was 64 steps every day to my office. And sometimes you'd be voting five or six times a day. Yeah. 
and the first time I did it, I thought I'm going to need halfway. Up, I thought I'm going to need an oxygen mask here, <laughs> and I'd get to the top and I'd be sweating and wheezing. Um, uh, but that became like my daily barometer of the gains I was making. The the easier, the longer I did it, the easier it got. Yeah. Um, and and I kind of to the point where I I've just written a piece of the Radio Times. I kind of missed those sixty four steps because it was only <laughs> yeah. my range how I was feeling on any particular day. Yeah, it is. I want to pick up the bit you said there about fitness. If you don't like fitness, don't do it. And that is very important from the perspective of there are so many people that have the mindset that right, I want to get fit, so I'm going to join a gym, and that's it. And and they hate the gym. So don't go to the gym. You know, there's so much you can do. And I'm yeah. glad you mentioned walking. Because yeah. I have a lot of and injuries as well. I have a lot of guys tell me that, you know, they've either got issues with their shin splints or their knees or the hips and stuff, so they can't do the exercise. And I'm like, well, that's fine. Just walk. Yeah, I couldn't run. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I would have injured my knees and ankles on the way yeah. I was uh, if I'd have done it on day one. Um, you know in a funny sort of way you have to after a while particularly if you're on keto i think um after a while you have to get the energy out so it's not like (laughs) you have to commit to exercise your body the body will make you do it because you're just so you know otherwise you're kind of you're sort of so full of beads you have to do something and that's why walking so great because you know i mean all the all the research in recent years um I forget the book I read. It was sort of the, the power of walking. Um, right. But it, I, I mean, just five minutes throughout the day, getting on your feet, moving around. Yeah. Um, the physiological effects of that are just so great. And also I find that if I have a little break in the day, go out for a little five minute walk, when you come back, you're again, switched on, you feel more productive. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think you just, it sort of resets the dial throughout the day. Doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, but you're right about the gym thing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. I've actually done that over 30 years. I, you know, I joined half a dozen gyms and, yeah. and you know, gone every day for a week and then, you know. Exactly. You months later. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the book you've just written, um, Downsizing. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the book, what you know, obviously caused you to write it and uh, things like yeah. that? I wrote the book when I was still a politician and um, I didn't know I wasn't going to be a politician when I'd finished it, but it was published just after I'd stood down. Um, And I didn't want it to be preachy. I didn't, I don't want to tell people what to do, but I did feel that I was sort of responsible for explaining about um, how, how you can get rid of diabetes. Because I was a policymaker, I felt responsible to sort of hold my hand up and admit Mm what I'd done um so but I realized I needed to be brutally honest about the almost the psychological or the denial aspects of the health journey people take um and and I did that uh so so the book is really the the account of a health journey um Mm. without hopefully without lecturing anyone and then um but you know when when during the process I felt I needed to to also talk about some of the public policy changes I'd like to see, because obviously I was a politician at the time. Um, and so things like, I, I think the next breakthrough for type two diabetes is, is continuous glucose monitors. Yeah. And, um, one of the things I, I hope 
we can consider as a country is when you're actually present to your um before you're pre-diabetic you're pre-diabetic before you're pre-diabetic you probably got raised blood pressure mm. and before you have raised blood pressure you're probably obese or overweight um, yeah. i think if people could have a continuous glucose monitor for a month when they when they hit overweight or obese and the gp could just give them that mm-hmm. owning their own physiological data would lead to big lifestyle changes earlier in their lives and for me i describe it you know when i used to go out to the pub on a friday night with my mates wake up in the morning go to the fridge and eat last night's cold pizza and down a litre bottle of coke yeah if i could see the sugar spike that that created yeah. on my phone yeah. i wouldn't i definitely wouldn't do that no. um, but i did that for about 25 years yeah. uh, and so there's you know we're helping the 20 and 30 year olds i think uh, avoid avoid diabetes which is should be the trick of public health policy really shouldn't it yeah, absolutely. No, I completely agree with you. And I think if you, you can draw a lot of parallels between, you know, what's happened with people walking and, and the smartwatches that count your steps, you know, just imagine that same effect then if you've got a, a glucose monitor and you've got an app on your phone and you can constantly see what's going on. I think people are actually, it almost becomes a bit of a gamified way to track your health. Um, and I completely agree with you you know glucose monitors are definitely the way forward and i actually wore one um earlier on this year i, I bought some because i was just very curious as to what happens when i eat certain foods and i was absolutely amazed you know at, at what some foods do and, and particularly like in the morning when i was fasted and i'd have a black coffee i used to get a spike then but then i obviously realized that was due to my cortisol levels and that's kind of you know standard really um, but yeah, I, I think, I think, I, and I don't know, you know, there's obviously a few companies that are bringing them out now, but I think definitely continuous glucose monitoring just gives you that insight and it gives you the ability to maintain your health. And this is a big thing for me right now is I truly believe that that is the shift that needs to happen in society. And that is we've become responsible for maintaining our health. And I think we're in a period in time where the, the the kind of advancement in technology is making it such that it will be cheap enough for us to do that and therefore you know i think that that is like we maintain our car on, on an annual basis we should be main, maintaining our health on an annual basis but i would argue we probably do more with our cars than we do with our health yeah i agree with you on that i mean you do have to commit a little i think you have to reckon i mean just sort of commit into more running kit or um mm. You, you know, uh, you, you, you can expend a bit more, but it doesn't have to be a great deal. No. Uh, and for me, you're right, the data, I don't think it works for everyone, this. And so this is where you've got to find your own way. But, yeah. I, I, I mean, one of my issues, I'm an, I'm an obsessive video gamer. I'm 53. I started off on a Z, Sinclair ZX80. Right. I used to input basic code when in the 80s. I've played right. video games all my life. Um, and so... Um, reaching the next level is something I'm familiar with. Um, mm. and, and so I measured everything. Um, and I now measure my sleep as well. I've got an aura yeah. ring. Um, and you, you know, so the, the, the interrelationship between data and decision-making worked very well for me. And, mm. and that's, that could be a revolution in public health. If we, if we could, you know, have ubiquitous measurements for people that want it. 
um, I yeah. think it would really help people make those personal decisions. Uh, Definitely. Definitely. Uh, and, um, you, you know, I'm quite excited about that because I think the revolution is coming on that. Yeah. So, so what are your future plans then, Tom, in terms of your weight, your fitness, getting your message out there? Because you've got, you know, a, a fantastic story. You know, you, you've got a, a good platform with the book to kind of get the message out there. What's your plan? Well, I mean, the one thing, I think my health journey took me into other areas. So I made a, quite a sudden decision to stand down as an MP and as deputy leader of the Labour Party last December. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried to be productive in that time while I work out what I was doing. I signed up to become a level two gym instructor or to train as one. Um, but then we shut all the gyms. So I've done a bit of, I've done the training course, but I haven't done my portfolio and I want to do that. Um, I've written a book after downsizing my first fiction book called the house. So I'd like to write more. And actually I, I, I very recklessly agreed to do a TV program called Don't Rock the Boat, which which required me to be on a team that rowed the length of Britain from Cornwall to the tip of tip of um, Scotland, and that right. goes out um, on Monday, November the second on ITV. Fantastic. Um, but what I really wanted to, you know, I'd like to find myself in a position where I can still do good in the world and mm. try and take people, you know, work with people who want to go on health journeys. You, yeah. you know, I mean, if you look at the figures that. There are probably 2 million people in Britain who are type 2 diabetic who could reverse yeah. their condition. Um, and if I could help them find their voice and help them take a journey and help the government understand what they need to do to help them as well, then mm. that's where I'd like to be. Um, so 2021, I haven't quite got my plans in place yet, right. um, but I know I want to get my level 2 gym instructor thing. I definitely want to help people get fit. Yeah. Uh, I've just launched some podcasts called Persons of Interest, uh, which launches. And the, although the first series is not health and well-being related, I want to talk to people in this space about what you know what they're doing and how we can help people next year. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's where I want to be, and I've got a feeling that's where that's where you are as well. You you know you because when you've been on the journey and you, it's almost like a liberation. It is. You want to share the joy. You want people to feel the joy that getting your health back. Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and for, yeah, for me, I've set myself a target of helping you know a million dads, and and for me, it's not about the six pack abs. It's about what we were talking about earlier around the unexpected outcomes that happen as a result. And, it, and it's a positive effect that, that trickles down into the family as well. So, you know, I'm, I don't push my kids into anything, but that what's happened as a result of me doing what I'm doing and doing Ironman and the rest of it and my diet is they naturally pick up and they, they're aware of sugar. They're aware of good foods, bad foods, you know. And, and exercise and running and everything. And I just think that is such a positive outcome for, for what I've done. And so I just want to help, you know, I want to help other dads do the same because I, I want to reverse this, this common acceptance, social acceptance that when you get to 40, it's downhill. No, it doesn't. It has to, you can go the other way significantly as well. Do you know the moment, um, one of my proudest moments, I, I you know, my, very close parliamentary friend Joe Cox um, yeah. was assassinated by a far right extremist. Um, 
and we, we've, there's a charity set in her honour and her sister organises a fun run in her old constituency every year. And I did it with my daughter, Saoirse. It was a, the two and a half K one. It wasn't the long one. And yeah. the two of us crossed the line together, holding hands. Mm. Uh, and because it was in honour of Joe and because mm. it was me and Saoirse, the idea that I could have done that the year before even mm. was impossible. Uh, and if you can help a million dads have that moment in their mm. life to me that is transformational 100 percent. yeah yeah amazing tom I, I could talk to you for for um for hours and um hopefully we'll get the opportunity again in the future and you know i'd love to be a part of, of anything that you do in that space but before i let you go um i'd like to know if there's five key points you could give to dads listening to this today who perhaps kind of you know got got the urge to to make that change after listening to us today okay um i don't know about five the first thing i'd say is don't panic um whatever your health condition is now and particularly if you've got type 2 diabetes it can get better yeah Um, the second thing i'd say is uh all the books say there are four pillars to health sleep exercise nutrition and well-being um I think there are three pillars to health and they're built on a foundation of sleep. So yeah. uh, if you can sort your sleep arrangements out, it'll help give you the bandwidth to do the other three. Um, my third point is um, even though you start your health journey, you'll be living it day to day. Plan ahead on the nutrition because uh, that, that's the easiest thing to fail. Yeah. Um, fourth is... Uh, you think about exercise, but don't beat yourself up about exercise. Uh, and, you know, going for a long walk is a huge achievement in your first part of your journey. Uh, and the fifth, I'm doing this off the top of my head, <laughs> is bank every incremental gain as a win. Right, Mentally file it away and give yourself credit because you've done something amazing. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I like the last one. I think the last one is very valid. We are very quick quick to, to kind of criticise ourselves or not kind of congratulate ourselves for the small little wins. And the, it's those small little wins that build up over a period of time to make massive impact. So, yeah, I think that's, um, that's a great point to end on, Tom. But before I let you go, where can people connect with you? How can they get the books? You know, all that kind of good stuff. Okay, that's kind of me to say. Um, if they Google me, uh, they'll find the website because I can't quite remember what the new URL is. Yeah. Uh, I'm Tom underscore Watson on Twitter. I'm okay. Tom Watson official on Instagram. Uh, and if they go to Amazon and go and stick in downsizing or the house, they could find my books. That's very kind of you to let me say that. I, that's I, right. I, no, no worries. I have to say these things though. <laughs> and then your your podcast. When's that launching? So the podcast hopefully launches next week, certainly in November, and it's called yeah. Persons of Interest. Um, and the first three interviews are going up in one go. And, okay. I, and this is me. In my last job, I met some of the world's most interesting people, but I never had time to chew, chew the fat with them. So I've just followed them up. And the one thing they all share, they're all from different backgrounds, but they all have very curious minds. And mm. I just wanted to find out what makes them tick. And I hope people find, I've done it. I've done it for the love really, but I hope yeah. people enjoy it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely be giving that a listen. Look, thanks very much for, for coming on again today. I sincerely appreciate it. Um, you've, 
made some fantastic achievements and um, yeah, I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Thank you. It's been a genuine pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Fitter Healthier Dad podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit subscribe and I would really appreciate if you could leave a review on iTunes. All the links mentioned in the episode will be in the show notes and a full transcription is over at fitterhealthierdad.com.